and um, you say, well, I mean, this is this, this Martin Luther King is today is tomorrow, and that's why we're here. We're celebrating his legacy uh, to some extent, and uh, it's easy, uh, particularly as an American, to say, you know, this is just an American thing. Uh, it was a it was a really big problem in the '60s. It's gotten better. I understand it's still a problem, but man, it, isn't it better to live in uh, 2020 uh, than it is pre 1960s in America? Uh, but I think what you'll find in reading the scriptures is that after the fall, uh, that this whole issue of dividing the world into the wrong people and the right people has always been in play. And when you begin to read the scriptures, not just in, in, for how it addresses us individually, but how it addresses us corporately, you begin to see this theme arise. So yes, it is a part of the fall, but what happens uh, through, the, through the life and the death and resurrection of Jesus is that he begins to make all things new. He begins to restore what has been, what was always intended. And so it, it's appropriate that we would address this here, but Christians uh, from all ages have always had to address this issue within their context. And for us, uh, it is fairly obvious. So that's why we're doing uh, what we're doing uh, here today. Uh, we're also, uh, I just want to mention, partly because I'm leaving this week, but uh, uh, Bryce Anderson, one of our elders, and myself, we are a part of the Institute of Cross-Cultural Mission. Uh, it is a three-year cohort uh, where Bryce and I go uh, to Washington, D.C., uh, to this uh, to a church called Grace, D.C. Uh, their pastor, Russ Whitfield, was um, uh, was uh, our Good Bluegrass speaker last year, and I kind of got connected through that. And uh, what we're trying to think about is what does it mean to do cross-cultural ministry within our context. Uh, we are the first, we are one of six churches uh, that's a part of this, uh, and we are the beta group. So, uh, it, it, so that, that means a couple things. One, it, you know, just like everything that's the first time, it's a little janky, uh, uh, but it also means it's cheap. So uh, Bryce and I were all about it uh, at, the, at the beta rate. So um, we are getting in on that action. So... Uh, because I, and now I'm doing it just because I think it's just super important, and uh, you'll see why from our passage today. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, help us, um, help those of us uh, who, who have thought a lot about this and talked a lot about this and maybe even done a lot about this. Lord, I pray that we would uh, be receivers of your word and uh, not people who block this out because uh, we've got this figured out. And Lord, I pray on the other end, those of us who, who feel so uh, lost with this issue, or maybe we see the irrelevance of this issue, Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, wake us up and uh, show us uh, the importance of it. Uh, we pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, so, it, it, in part because it's a, a, an assignment for this cohort, I've been reading this book called uh, Disunity in Christ. Uh, it's a great book. I, I'm almost done with it, and I recommend it highly uh, to you. Uh, but it's written by uh, a sociologist, a woman named Dr. Christina Cleveland. It's, it's very readable. It's not like it's just full of statistics and data and footnotes. Um, so it's, 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 you, can, you can get after it. And in the very beginning of the book, she tells the story of a man uh, in her church named Ben. If your name's Ben, don't take offense to this. This is really right from the book. Uh, and uh, Christina and uh, Ben were the only two single people uh, in their church. And she describes Ben as possibly the most offensive person she ever knew. 
Uh, now, Dr. Christina Cleveland is, uh, is a, you know, she's single when she's writing this book. Uh, she's an African-American woman. And um, Ben just is not. Uh, he, he's offensive to her. He, he annoyed her. He was inflexible. He was preachy in his conservatism. He was a career engineer who designed nuclear warheads. Uh, he was dorky and wore these Hawaiian print button downs. These are all her words, by the way. Um, and so she was always plotting in her small church where, where her and Ben are the only two single people. She was always plotting how she could avoid him. Until suddenly she was confronted with the idea that Ben was going to be in heaven with her forever. <laughs> and it terrified her. So she began to think, well, maybe heaven is a really, really big, pay, big place and maybe I won't see him very often. <laughs> to her, Ben was wrong Christian. Now to Dr. Cleveland, wrong Christian doesn't think. Wrong Christian doesn't read books, and they have the limited vocabulary to prove it. Wrong Christian votes based on two issues, abortion and homosexuality. Wrong Christian lacked cross-cultural sensitivity. Wrong Christian was more concerned about the Second Amendment than the First. And wrong Christian was most importantly a he. Now, right Christian was a lot more like her. Right Christian drives a Prius on their way to the farmer's market. Right Christian, uh, she is well-traveled. She's able to thrive in any cultural setting. She hops on uh, the bandwagons uh, of poverty and social justice and environmental issues. She's not bound by political affiliation. She votes independently. In other words, Democrat. Um, Right Christian reads a lot. Right Christian, she, to her, right Christian is the, uh, a woman who knows she's wonderful, charming, and the more valuable member of the body of Christ than wrong Christian. I'm, I'm sure that doesn't sound anything like you, right? I mean, maybe your versions of right Christian and wrong Christian are flip-flop. Maybe you'd swap out some of those things and insert things like proud of their denomination, Maybe you would insert something like certain theological conviction. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on. But why are things that way? Well, in part, it's because our hearts are dark. We easily move from avoiding people to condemning them. But I think there's more going on here than just our individual hearts. There's our current context. Our current context makes it really easy to go from judging someone who happens to be different to saying that they're wrong. One study that she cites in her book uh, says that today's churchgoers, uh, what is most important to them about choosing their church is that, is that they find a church that's culturally similar to them and that expresses the same individual values. And the study finds that as, a, as someone, a churchgoer, is shopping for this and finds it, they drive by dozens of other churches en route to their church, the ones that meets their cultural expectations. And so what happens is that Christians can easily go their entire lives without spending time with those who are different from them. But unfortunately, the more you spend time with people who are like you, 
essentially identical to you, the more you become convinced that our way of relating to Jesus and our way of relating to the world is the correct way. And so over time, your convictions become stronger, your attitude towards ideas and cultural expressions of worship become more and more negative. Now, this same study shows that American churches are becoming increasingly more homogenous. In other words, more and more alike in terms of ethnicity, culture, and theology, all while America is becoming increasingly more diverse in terms of race and culture. Let's just take Lexington and Fayette County. Lexington Fayette County, uh, it, it, for, for the public schools uh, in our area, the 2019-2020 school year, here's the ethnic diver diversity breakdown. You ready for this? It's 49% white, 23% black, 18% Hispanic, 5% Asian, and 6% other ethnicities. Now, the obvious thing is there are more non-whites in our school than there are whites. But the diversity goes further. 13% of all students in Fayette County do not speak English as their first language. Those 13% of students speak 94, not just Spanish, 94 other languages as their first language. This is Kentucky, people. <laughs> Yet for many of us, this is really surprising because the spaces that we inhabit, our neighborhoods, our workplaces, our schools, our churches, they're increasing in sameness while our city and our country are increasing in their differences. So what should we do? How do cultural strangers become friends? How does Ben, or wrong Christian, who might be the closest thing that we have to an enemy, become our friend? Well, Martin Luther King, one of his famous quotes is, love is the only thing powerful enough to transform our enemies into our friends. Love is the only thing powerful enough to transform our enemies into our friends. See, love is really the answer to these questions. Love is the answer for our dark hearts. Love is the answer for our broken world. And so today, the passage uh, that you'll see in your bulletin is 1 Corinthians 13. It's been de deemed a love passage, usually here to weddings, and it has nothing to do with weddings, by the way. And it's going to give us some light, uh, share some light with us about how we're going to bridge the divide, how we're going to bridge the divide in our churches and our neighborhoods. Uh, so let's read the passage together. 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if, all, if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. 
when I became a man. I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now, faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Pursue love. Uh, The chapter uh, really breaks down into three sections. The first part, verses 1 to 3, is the supremacy of love. Verses 4 to 7 is the character of love. And verses 8 to 13 is the forever of love. All right, look at the first three verses. Uh, The first thing you'll see right there in verse 2 is you'll see prophetic powers. Prophetic powers really means spiritual intuition, being able to see the hearts and motivations of other people. It's a gift. Second thing you see is understand all mysteries. And what Paul always means by mysteries in the New Testament when he uses it is he's talking about the Bible. He's talking about a mystery is a revelation that God has formerly left unrevealed has now been revealed. So these people, they have this spiritual intuition. These people know a lot about the Bible. They're, they have high biblical literacy. And then it says all knowledge. Do you see that? It just means they're educated. Then it says faith to move mountains. It means they're gifted leaders. They get stuff done. Verse 3 then speaks of them being generous givers. And then it says that they're really sincere. I mean, they're so sincere, they're willing to give up their own bodies to be burned. So you see, you get a picture of these people. I mean, they have high integrity. The last thing you could call them are hypocrites. And it sounds like a really great church, doesn't it? I mean, if someone came up to you, let's say you you moved from the uh, center of the universe, Lacey, Kentucky, and you moved somewhere else and you were looking for a church and uh, someone that you met in your new town came up to you and said, uh, hey, I know this really great church. It's it's very spiritually discerning. It takes the Bible seriously. There's a lot of really bright, gifted leaders in the church. The people are really committed. They're really sincere. You'd probably say, wow, man. Sounds like a great church. I'll have to come visit. But this was Paul's evaluation of the church in Corinth. Except they lacked one thing. They lacked love. And instead of being this gifted, talented, smart church, they're nothing more than a bunch of irksome racket. They're just this noisy gong and clanging cymbal. Now, I'm not saying that all these things I've just listed that were true of the church in Corinth are bad things. They're not bad things. They're not totally worthless. It's just that they're not central. The Bible's important. Leadership and education are important. They're valuable. But they pale in comparison to love. See, love's supreme. Now, when we come to this whole issue of of justice, racial justice, and racial inequality, the thing that we're we're looking at uh, with MLK Day. Some of us come to this issue and and we say, man, I I really have mourned over police brutality. I, I feel this great compassion towards the immigrant crisis in the U.S. You listen to the news, you read articles, you're even willing to post occasionally about these social issues on social media. You would be in some degree woke, per se. And you'd be glad, you you really would, because you're somewhat woke and you have an understanding of kind of what's going on, you're willing to sit on the board of a nonprofit that addresses these issues. 
You're willing to go to the scriptures and say, all right, I, I know that Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 was called to bless the nations, all kinds of people. I know that that was towards the beginning. And in Revelation 7, we had this all-encompassing vision of a multi-ethnic, multicultural, multi-everything church in heaven. But you can go to the scriptures and you can sit on a board and you may not have love. And what this calls us to is to get personally involved. It means we got personally involved in the lives of other people who currently might be the wrong person. In order to find out that they're not actually wrong, but they're just different. I think it's possible, especially in church like ours, it's possible to hide behind our talent, hide behind our education, hide behind our influence, and we avoid the hard work of building relationships with people who are different than us. So in some ways, Paul is calling them to the carpet here. But in some ways, these are compliments, right? Well, he moves from kind of giving these compliments of saying these somewhat positive things, but they're insufficient, they're inadequate. And then he's just going to go off in verses 4 to 7. You see the character of love. See, they were positive there in the first three verses. These next four verses, they're quite negative. See, he says they're not patient, they're not kind. They're envious, they're boastful. They insist on getting their own way. They're arrogant, they're rude. They don't rejoice at the truth. They just rejoice at wrongdoing. And they don't bear with people. And you think about these two things, verses 1 to 3 and 4 to 7, they usually go together, don't they? Usually people who are talented, powerful, and smart, but not loving, you can describe with all those words in verses 4 to 7, can't you? And you think about who's the audience here. Well, the audience here, there are people in the church. And when we think about how are we going to apply the love chapter, again, you hear this in weddings. And if you're to love your spouse this way, it's really hard. It's really difficult. Try loving your kids this way. It's really hard. Your kids don't care how smart you are. Your kids don't care how educated you are. They just care about if you love them. And that's hard. And you got your close friends. It's, you, you think, man, it's, it's, it's kind of easy to love my close friends. Then you take a really hard look at verses 1 to 7. You're like, man, I don't even love my close friends this way. But think about loving wrong Christian this way. Think about loving someone different than you in this way. Someone that you disagree with. Someone who's hurt you in this way. Well, this was the power of the civil rights movement. See, in that letter, the, the, the Birmingham jail letter that I've encouraged all of you to read, I read it this morning. And uh, Dr. King goes after two groups uh, of African Americans in the letter. He goes after one group is the one that he calls them mostly middle class, that they, because of segregation, they, they incur some benefits. They've kind of found their niche where they, it, it, some, things are somewhat cozy for them. And then he addresses those who want to address the, address the racial inequality with violence. And he goes after both. And he said, that is, we're about neither. We have to address the issue, but we're going to address it with nonviolence. They're going to love their neighbor. In fact, love their enemy. I was reading this story a long time ago, and uh, it just stuck with me. And it's a story uh, that happened just a few years ago uh, at a church um, that we have some connections with. Our church does, and Tate's Creek does. It's um, Second Presbyterian Church in Memphis. It's been around a really long time. 
And um, in fact, Justin Betsy worked there uh, back in the 90s. Almost kidding. Um, so, um, uh, Second Presbyterian Church in 1964, uh, they, they, they weren't allowed, blacks weren't allowed in the worship service. And so in 64, a group of blacks and whites uh, knelt on the front steps of the sanctuary as a nonviolent protest to this policy. And about 50 years later, in 2012, Second Press, they wanted uh, to remember this occasion. So they invited uh, any kneeling, any, anyone who was kneeling on the front steps that day to come, uh, anyone who, family members of those who did the kneeling to come, and to share their stories in this service. One woman shared her story. Her name is Carolyn McGee. Uh, Carolyn McGee was the sister of Joe Purdy. Joe Purdy uh, was the first black man who was denied entrance into the church. Carolyn McGee shares her story, and uh, one of the elders from the church, his name is Sam Wheatley. Sam Wheatley uh, comes up to Carolyn after the service and said how moved she was by her story. And, and, and uh, he said, I remember when your brother was here, I was six years old. He'd been in the church that whole time. And he was curious. And he said, Carolyn, would you be so kind? You and your family, would you come and have dinner with me and my family? And he asked a bunch of, they had very frank conversations about uh, race issues. This went on for months and months and months. And finally, Sam's son, who was fairly fresh out of college, he was a math teacher. He's a math teacher at a school made up of 87% uh, uh, non-whites. And uh, he asked this question, quote, how do I convince my students I truly care about them and I want what's best for their future? They just see me as a white guy from a privileged background and they're not sure they can trust me. Here was Miss McGee's answer. Get to know them. Listen to their stories. Value them as individuals made in the image of God. Love them as neighbors as you love yourself. You almost want to be like, duh. <laughs> right? I mean, it's, there's really simple answers here. But sometimes the simplest answers are the most difficult to pull off. I mean, loving someone like you love yourself is a simple command. If you added up how much you thought about yourself today and how much you thought about others, I, I know where that's headed. Valuing people, particularly those who are different from you, is very difficult. Listening to people's stories instead of reading your own story and presumptions into theirs sounds simple, but it's very difficult. And if we're really honest with ourselves, particularly when it comes to matters of race... We too should be convinced of how inadequately love is displayed in our lives. So we begin to see these verses, verses 1 to 7, more as an indictment on us than we see them as an instruction for us. It kind of leaves us looking for an answer. It looks us for a solution. And that's what the second half of the chapter does. Look at verse 8, the forever of love. At verses 8 and following, you, you, you see there, you see, remember, uh, prophecies just means spiritual intuition. Tongues means a spiritual experience. This is all verse 8. And knowledge means being intelligent. And what Paul is saying is that all these things are going to pass away. And Paul moves on to this metaphor of a child. And it sounds like he's talking negatively about children, but he's not. He's just saying that children are only partially grown up. 
A child is intended to mature into adulthood. So our spiritual knowledge, our spiritual intuition, our spiritual experiences that are just partially grown up, they're incomplete. The completion, the intended result of all these things is love. Because love is the only thing that's going to last in heaven. Love's eternal. Think about it. Think about the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Each member of the Trinity is eternal. Jesus wasn't created 2,000 years ago. He was there at creation of the whole world. Each member of the Trinity is eternal. And before they created the world, you had these three members of the Trinity. They were not only in existence with one another, but they were in loving relationship. They deferred to one another as they met one another's needs. See, God wasn't alone. He had himself to keep him company before creation. So he didn't create the world to cure his loneliness. He created the world because it overflowed out of the love that he had within himself. And so when we join him in heaven, we're just going to pick up on the loving activity that's long been taking place. And that's why love is so valuable now. It's a training ground for what we'll do forever. See, you're not going to need hope and faith in heaven. You're not going to need spiritual knowledge, spiritual intuition, spiritual experiences in heaven. Why? Look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. See, you're not going to need hope when you see Jesus face to face. You don't need faith when the object of your faith is before your very eyes. You don't need spiritual knowledge. You don't need spiritual experiences. You don't need spiritual intuition when you're with Jesus. That's the stuff of children. The stuff of being grown up is love. So what's it look like in the here and now? Well, look at verse 14. Verse four, or chapter 14, uh, verse 1. First two words just say, pursue love. That word pursue is a really interesting one. It can, also be per, it can also be translated as persecute. It can also be uh, um, translated as run after or follow in haste. So you see the point of it. It means to go after something with vigor and passion and energy. And loving wrong Christian and loving people who are different from you is going to require that you do a whole lot more than get woke. It's going to require more than you giving lip service to certain issues. It's going to require heart change. I mean, think about Jesus and what he did. He pursued us with great tenacity in spite of our differences with him. See, Jesus pursues us despite theological differences. I mean, his theology is far more comprehensive and accurate than ours. He pursues this in spite of cultural differences. Think about it. He's holy. We're sinful. That's a pretty significant cultural difference. And he's really serious about connecting with all kinds of people. We see it in his life. Jesus modeled it. He, he, he pursued conservative theologians and liberal theologians. Prostitutes. Divorcees. Children, politicians, people who partied really hard. 
military servicemen. Pursued women, he pursued lepers, he pursued ethnic minorities, he pursued celebrities. And he invited all those different kinds of people to come together to form his group to bring about wholeness in the world. Yet he did more than just model this in his earthly life. He died for us too. See, on the cross, the one who knew no sin became sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, his life and his death cost him everything. He gave up the perpetual praise of angels for the scorn of mankind. He gave up the comforting presence of Father and Holy Spirit for the loneliness of being rejected. He died an awesome death on Calvary. But why did he do all that? It was because he loved you, friend. And he loved you when you were different than him. Radically different. And to the degree that you see Jesus pursue you when you were his enemy, the degree to which you see that Jesus pursued you that you were different than him, will be the degree to which you will love your enemies. It will be the degree to which you love those who are different than you. See, I really believe about this whole thing. I'm not some futurist, but I'm not a prophet. I'm just a preacher. But I really believe that this could be the issue that spurs revival in our country. I think it could be the issue that spurs revival in our city. See, our country and our city, they're becoming more and more diverse and more and more divided all the time. So what if the church was the place that reflected the diversity of their city within its four walls? What if the church was the one who overcame division because it was the place that possessed this power, the power of love that transforms enemies into friends? I I know this seems impossible. There's so few churches who are doing it. But the gospel is strong enough to bring this about, brothers and sisters. May it be so, Lord Jesus. Amen.